Today, we dive into the world of contracting with Harry Horton. Harry is a software engineer and contractor working for Toptal and is admirably knowledgeable on the trends and developments in the world of software. Enjoy. Given the safety net that comes with being a salaried software engineer, what was the inspiration behind you taking the plunge into contracting? You know, working salaried is great. And, uh, you know, you have uh, consistency, reliability. You've got a company that, you know, wants to keep you around. And it can be pretty nerve-wracking thinking about switching to contracting. Um, typically, people will think, um, oh, you can work for this company and maybe the contract's going to be short or all of a sudden your livelihood is going to disappear. And so far in my experience, that hasn't really been the case. Um, so I originally wanted to become a contractor uh, because I wanted to uh, work less than 40 hours a week, um, make more port per hour and spend more time working on uh, personal projects. Um, and uh, when, when I managed to get into contracting and I was working full time with it, uh, it, it felt a little bit more like a full time job, but with a lot of the other contractor perks. So, so you know, it's pretty nerve wracking going from salary to contracting where, um, you know, first you have to find a client, which can be really difficult. And uh, you can take a few different approaches to being a contractor in general. One is, you know, you can find clients on your own and negotiate things on your own and, uh, you know, handle all the business side and the invoicing and uh, negotiations. And that can be extremely difficult. Um, unless you have experience in that stuff, I don't really recommend that approach. Uh, another path you can take is uh, going through a recruiter, which uh, makes it easy to find people, but you're still responsible for, you know, learning all the contracting things yourself and often handling negotiations and stuff like that. Um, my preferred approach is to use uh, one of a number of platforms that exist out there where um, they have platforms like TopTel, um, TopTel, Moonlight, uh, Braintrust, where they will, uh, they have clients already that are looking for people and they have a list of contractors and uh, they make it easy to connect um, clients looking for work with uh, highly skilled contractors. Um, some some of these platforms do a lot of testing beforehand, like TopTal. Um, and some of them just look at your resume and make their own recommendations to clients. But these organizations will typically handle the negotiations. They'll help you with the contract. They'll help you, you know, communicate with the client and uh, work on the business side of things. And uh, a lot of them will actually pay you as well. So the client will pay them. They'll take a small percent cut of whatever your rate is. And then... Um, they'll pay you often, even if the client doesn't. And so, you know, taking invoicing and negotiations and a lot of the other stuff out of the mix, uh, it makes getting started with uh, started and, and continuing to work in contracting a hell of a lot easier. And had you explored um, a little bit with being an independent contractor, not with any of these middlemen before you started working with TopTel? Or did you, yeah. you started working? Okay. Yeah, so um, for side work, uh, like a lot of software engineers, I, I've worked quite a few um, hourly and, and part-time contracting gigs. And most of them were fine. Um, you know, it can be really difficult to find clients. And, and when you get them uh, and you're working with your own negotiations, often they just, it's some smaller company or startup or maybe even, the solo, maybe even a solo person that just needs some help. And uh, you typically don't have the support that you might. Um, if you're working with larger organizations looking for contractors or through a platform that helps connect you to clients. Um, so I've done that in development and uh, I also did that in IT for a while. And uh, I'm not really a fan, it's pretty stressful and uh, it's a lot to have to like, you know, 
chase down payments uh, for, you know, uh, a small, like single person startup or something like that, or uh, negotiating things or just, you know, getting what you need from, from small teams. And when you're looking out, when you're finding contracts on your own, um, that, that'll be the majority of what you find. But when you're going through these, uh, these organizations that help connect you to clients, uh, they typically have a list of larger organizations that have the resources and have the systems in place to support you so that you can be, you know, the best contracting engineer that you can be. And once you were in the door with, you said TopTal does a lot of testing. Once you're in the door, mm-hmm. how was the connection process between a client who's looking for a skilled developer and what is the process they follow for connecting you and actually making you a contractor for that client? Is there additional testing? Is there a simple personal interview to see if you're a good fit? What, is, what does that look like? <clears throat> so... With my experience with Toptal, it was pretty straightforward. Um, I had a skill set that one of their clients was looking for. So they kind of fast-tracked me directly into a job, got me an interview. Um, I did a very simple test, and then um, I was onboarded very shortly then after. Uh, most people, at least on the Toptal, Toptal platform, that from what I can tell, um, they spend a while looking through lists of clients, and either they can find a, a gig that they want to apply to, um, and if the uh, the people working on the platform decide that you're a good fit, then they'll you know select a few people and then send those off to the client. The client chooses, um, and then you'll do an interview. Some clients have tests, some clients don't. Um, that's really just up to what they want. After that, uh, Toptal will negotiate um, a rate if anything needs to be negotiated. Um, but typically, you say, "Hey, I want to get paid X per hour." And uh, you know they'll tell you if that's you know reasonable or not. So if you're asking for you know five hundred dollars an hour, uh, you know they may come back and say, hey, that's that's not reasonable. But um, other than that, you can you can charge pretty much whatever you want, um, and they handle the negotiations and getting the contract for you to sign and everything like that. So you're pretty much just responding to requests to sign things and uh, you know getting things set up. It sounds like a nice process, though. I mean, having someone handle all of that and even the payments flowing through uh, down to you from the contractor and having the middleman kind of coordinate, that must be easier. And I'm sure they're better at, or at least you don't have to handle shaking down people to get your money, right? Is that <laughs> is that kind of yeah. right? Yeah, Toptal specifically will um, pay you uh, whether or not the client does. So you're not at any risk. If you've worked the hours, then you're going to get the pay. And that's some great assurance too. I mean, I'm not sure how a lot of these other companies are doing that do this client and talent connection, but that's a really nice assurance to have. So you had talked a little bit about how you wanted to become a contractor because you wanted to work a little bit less than 40 hours and kind of work on your side projects at the same time, which I think every developer has at some point they have that idea or they're forced into working their full-time gig and just spend the, spend the off time hours doing more and more. Did that dream come true? Are you working less than 40 (laughs) and doing your, your off stuff? (laughs) No. Um, So that's that's still the goal, um, but uh, you know, once I started contracting, uh, like one of the biggest pros to contracting is just you can get paid more. Um, and to talk a little bit about that, so when you're working salaried, a company is responsible for you know paying for a lot of different benefits. They have additional taxes and stuff that they have to pay, and uh, there's a lot more that goes into hiring somebody on sal- salaried, whereas. Uh, when you're a contractor, you're responsible for paying a lot more and you're a little bit more at risk. So like if a company is 
you know, falling on tough times, like the, the contractors and that they're working with, they're going to be some of the first to go. So contractors end up getting paid um, or can end up getting paid a lot more depending on the organization and um, negotiations, I think for pay are also a lot easier. In what sense compared to a salary job or like that initial process? Is it just because you set your initial rate and there's less ambiguity there or less wiggle room in some sense? So you come in at a a much higher rate typically. So if you come in as a salaried employee, um, they might start you off at a certain number and say, hey, after 90 days, we'll increase this to increase this by, you know, five or 10K. Um, and then maybe after a year, have you proven yourself? We'll bump you up another 5k. And then after another year, maybe we'll give you another 5k. And, uh, those are, those are super small increments that companies are using in order to give you a, a carrot to chase, to just give you some incentive to, to do well, which, uh, is a little bit of, you know, gamifying it, but that's, that's reasonable, right? If I, if I ran a company, I would do the same thing. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're a contractor, you come in and flat out say, Hey, this is what I expect to be paid. And when you're a contractor, you you could be hourly. You could be working 10, 20, 30, you know, 60 hours a week. It just it just depends. So um, I think the negotiations end up being a lot more flexible than uh, whatever rules that HR typically has set up for the salaried employees. And to go off of that just a bit, what are the expectations? Have you noticed a difference in the expectations between what is expected of you in terms of delivery right away as a contractor versus being an in-house dev, um, the we want you to be able to deploy something first week, first month, whatever it is. Versus, I think companies. My my bias, I'm thinking, is that they a company that you're a part of, if you're salaried, would probably be much more uh, coddling to some sense, or could even go in the other direction and be more demanding. Uh, what's what's it been in your experience? So. When it comes to full-time contracting gigs, it seems like they're willing to invest time into you. Um, and they basically treat you as if you're a normal employee, except for the fact that you get to avoid a lot of the office politics and uh, a lot of the <clears throat> HR hurdles that you have to jump through. Um, but other than that, uh, I've been treated pretty much like an employee. Uh, there was you know, a ramp-up period saying, hey, like, you know, we understand it's going to take you time to, to learn our stack. Uh, you know, it might take a month, it might take three months, depending on the organization, uh, but it's pretty much the same. It's when you're working with uh, hourly or, you know, smaller scale clients that uh, things are a little bit different. Um, often those clients have like an intense need, like maybe their uh, existing employees don't have the, the, the capacity uh, or skills to fix a certain problem that happens to be a priority. And so they go searching for help elsewhere. They think, oh, I don't want to bring on a new salary client. So why don't I find a freelancer or contractor? So when you come on, typically they'll say, hey, we have these you know, immediate needs. We want something delivered. And uh, they basically expect you to be able to jump on and hit the ground running as fast as possible so that you can deliver as quickly as possible. Ideally, you know, any professional will be hitting you know, the ground and, and delivering as soon as possible. But uh, the... Uh, sense of urgency is much higher when you're working less time. I think too that if you're a company that is extending contracting jobs, you're probably relatively organized to the point where you know exactly what you're hiring someone for and you've really thought about it. Whereas 
not that a, a company that has purely full-time employees wouldn't be organized or calculated like that, but in my experience, I've often found that, uh, for example, the company I came into, I had a little bit of experience with React when I first started. I was mainly a server-side guy with Node and Express, and within six months, I was doing some iOS contributions, some you know, different PHP contributions, things I hadn't used at all. Whereas I feel like with the contracting world, because you're specifying your rate, you're specifying here's the exact skills I'm good at, whether it's, you know, I'm a React guy, I'm an Angular guy, I can do backend, I, I specialize in TypeScript, whatever it is. I feel like the expectation is a little bit more set and the, the full-time organizations that have just purely full-time employees might be a little bit more dynamic or need you to be a little bit more dynamic and they're expecting you because you are full-time, yeah, we could invest a week in training you or having you go learn Ruby on Rails or to do other things. Whereas uh, I guess you could speak a little bit to how much the displayed role that was required for you at whatever gig you're at, how much that has been changed or if it has been exactly the same, you're working on the same stack that was advertised, et cetera, things like that. So... <clears throat> When it comes to salaried employees versus contractors, I think that the only major difference is that salaried employees are typically expected to take more of a role in uh, leadership and more company organization things. So they might be more responsible for a project or maybe you know they're expected to want to be a manager of a team if it's a larger organization. Or if you're very small, maybe they, they're expected to take more of an initiative um, to show that they're invested in the company. Uh, but, you know, and this isn't li limited to development or even technology, but when, when you're an expert in something and somebody is bringing you on because you're an expert and, uh, you know, you have all the skills to, to not just work on that thing, but a lot of tangential things as well. Um, they don't like, if you hire a person to a contractor to come out and build a deck, um, typically they're going to be able to do more than build a deck. And just because you hired them to build a deck doesn't mean that you're not then also going to ask them if you like the deck. Uh, hey, could you do a fence? Can you uh, fix this cabinet? Um, can you fix these steps on my porch? Uh, when I was working in IT, um, it was kind of the same way. Where uh, <laughs> I used to I used to joke that you know I would walk into a room and fix their computer, and then because uh, you know the desk is broken, the computer is sitting on top of it. They're like, oh well, you know, can you can you also fix my desk? Um, <laughs> when you're solving when you're in a space solving problems for people. Um, they always have more problems that are connected to it that are outside of the original scope. And so there's always, um, if not the expectation, there's always the eventual need that you need to uh, you know, grow outside of the initial scope in order to deliver in ways that uh, both you and the client expect. And so, speaking, speaking of that a little bit, was every contracting job you ever did mostly full-time? Because I can imagine the requests for repeat work, even if someone hired you for a four-month job, like you said, you fix someone's computer, they ask you to fix their, fix their desk next, or you hire a general contractor to come out and they do your fence really good. I got five friends who needed their fences done too. I got to imagine the request for repeat business is quite high, obviously assuming, like you said, the fence is a good fence, they did a good job. Mm -hmm. Did you have any experiences with that where it was kind of a not contract to hire, but contract to contract to contract kind of a gig? Um, 
typically when you start working with somebody, you just kind of keep working with them on all of their needs. And uh, there are some situations where you kind of back away and they say, hey, I just had this one thing I needed done. And after that, you know, I think we're good to go and we won't need you anymore. And then they call you back a few months later. Um, I think in like something like IT, that's pretty common because people only call you when there is an issue. But with, uh, with developments, you know, there's always too much in the backlog and they always need a lot to do. Um, so typically if they're willing to hire somebody on, they're going to want you for a lot more. And if they are going to stop working with you, then maybe they'll call you back a year later if they hit a capacity issue again and they've had an issue with, uh, you know, their resources that they have available and they need to bring somebody on. Um, but I think it's more common that, you know, you finish a gig and, you know, they don't have you come back, at least on projects where they have existing developers. If it's somebody that, you know, just built a web, like an e-commerce site and it's doing good enough for them and they don't ever need any development work, like they may come back time and time again on uh, for new cycles of work. But for larger organizations, um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty one and done. But that one is going to be, you know, six months or even a few years. And to elaborate on wanting a master to come in and defining your skill set and your hourly rate, when did you, if ever, feel comfortable or ready to make the jump to be like, okay, I'm entirely self-sustaining. Obviously, you're going to reach out to whoever, whatever community you're in for help on certain extremely technical things or things you're having trouble with. But when did you feel comfortable enough to be like, yeah, I could get thrown onto any project within this tech stack and knock it out in a certainly reasonable amount of time and it'll be of high quality. Was there a moment when you turned around after completing six or seven projects over the course of a year that where you were like, you know what, I could get this done? Or was it kind of thing you were like, you know what, I, I just think I want to go and try that out. Did you have any kind of a split or was it, was it just like, ah, let's see. It all depends on the scope of the project, right? So um, like I'm not an infrastructure, infrastructure guy, but you know, I could set up a, a simple serverless stack uh, with existing tooling and, and following stuff. Um, but, you know, when it comes to that space, if somebody's like, hey, my needs are somewhat limited, you know, that falls into the category of, you know, I can, I can figure this out. Um, and when you're first getting started in development, everything is, I can figure this out. Like, you have to be kind of optimistic and sometimes even a little bit arrogant in order to be confident enough to, uh, to take on some really hard, hard problems when you don't have the experience yet. Uh, but when it comes to specific stacks, so like if you're working with, um, you know, React or, or, you know, just basic Express, like, you know, backend APIs or Laravel or whatever it happens to be, um, if you're working in that space for a while, you start to hit a point where you don't start seeing a lot of new problems that aren't, you know, super straightforward to, to implement. And I, I think that's where that switch starts to happen is where you start noticing the shift between, um, I don't know much about that, but I might be able to figure it out to, I've seen something very similar to this. And while there are always unknowns, um, I feel very confident that, that I know what to do here because I've done it multiple times before. Yep, yep. And so as that, that bar, you know, slides from one side to the other, um, that's where the, uh, the confidence starts to come in. So a framework that I know and have come to love and is partly contributed to by a good friend of mine is Nest.js. It was a technology that I got introduced to early on at my time at Colio, and immediately it felt like riding a bike. I was able to build a server-side app using TypeScript, importantly, TypeScript, as opposed to JavaScript, 
and I was able to do what I wanted to do without minimal, like without any friction, it felt like. Um, connecting to any kind of a database, SQL, NoSQL, really doing everything in Nest is a breeze for me. I know you are also a big fan of Nest and TypeScript. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what it is that you like about it? Um, thoughts in general on Nest? <clears throat> so I was also introduced to Nest at, uh, at Colio. Uh, I think the, the first benefit of using Nest is the fact that it is TypeScript. Um, TypeScript in general is, has been the, the biggest, you know, tool that has helped me across my entire developer experience, uh, you know, working in, in JavaScript or PHP or, you know, other non-super type safe languages, uh, was really difficult and TypeScript was just, it was just work, working with that. It's just night and day. Um, Nest.js as a framework was really awesome. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like it. It helps you out with a lot of things, but it does stay out of your way. Um, it has really good TypeScript support. Um, it's about the only place I've ever seen generics used uh, that I actually enjoyed. Um, it, it does a lot for you, but it doesn't do so much that you have to uh, struggle to work around the framework to accomplish like very common things. So um, I'm not really sure where the magic came from with that, but uh, yeah, it's just been a fantastic framework that encourages you to organize your code and modules and keep your code split up and, you know, do proper testing. They have some, some decent CLI tooling. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's been fantastic. Um, I've used Nest.js on quite a few projects now. And, um, you know, every once in a while, I'll, you know, peek back at something like Laravel, which is like a super batteries included framework or uh, because I do like Laravel, I'll look at something like Adonis, which is Laravel in Node.js with TypeScript. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've looked at Blitz and some other things. And I like the direction that many libraries are going. And I do wish that Nest had more uh, official modules for common things. But uh, I keep coming back to Nest. It just it feels very, very natural. And I'm not sure if it's just uh, a matter of experience with the platform or uh, if they really did nail that sweet spot between uh, doing too much for you and doing just enough. I, I definitely agree with basically all of that. I know they, so Camille is the face of that. He was the one that created it. And he's a guy from Poland, really talented from, from what I hear and what I have at least experienced. He definitely found that sweet spot that you're talking about. I know they take much inspiration from Angular, the way they do the dependency injection system and the way that they have opinions, much what they do better than Angular, I'd say, and for better or worse, I know some people like very opinionated frameworks. Um, Angular is, I'd say, boilerplate heavy, and they have opinions on ways to do things, and obviously they have their own, own way to do templates, similar to how React does it. I would argue React is a lot more elegant, but that's, you know, this is me. But they do embrace TypeScript at its core right away, out of the box. It's what they supply, and to, to go off of what you said too, TypeScript has also been something that I've really, really enjoyed I came out of school being really a pure JavaScript guy, and I had taken the courses in you know, Java and C++ where you have to type everything, but to me, going out into the Wild West and being able to shoot your own foot off with something that's not typed and do an entire, maybe say it's a, a project in Express that just wasn't typed, or even Node, and we can get a little bit into that, how for me it's been beautiful to see the evolution of a Node server 
going to an express server, having that framework to be used to do to using Nest, it was good to learn them all in that order, where you get to understand the lower the lowest level, and then you can go up another level for the nice abstractions for writing a server, and then Nest comes along with the type safety and the somewhat opinionated way to do things where you do have all your modules, really nice to have, especially with the dependency injection system, but it does scale incredibly well. And I even use it for really small projects too. So that is a testament to its ability to be useful for both. And it's been a pleasure to work with from, from my point of view. I don't know if you have anything more on that, but that's kind of uh, what I've loved about it. Yeah, the, the module system, I think, is the nicest part. So <clears throat> what I like about Nest is what I don't like about Angular. Uh, so when you're looking at Angular and you're comparing, like, let's say, Angular, Vue, React, um, and we'll leave Svelte out of the conversation. Uh, Angular is you know, built for the enterprise work. It's built for uh, people wanting to do a dependency injection so they can swap things out for testing or uh, you know, managing the application as a whole. And they include, it's a batteries included uh, front-end uh, framework. Um, whereas React.js started as, oh, we're just a view layer. And then you know, people had to create uh, so many variations of the common solutions until the community finally settled on you know, the most common packages. Um, but it doesn't you know, come with anything like dependency injection or a lot of other features that you know, come with Angular. But because it's so simple um, at its core, it allows you to be a lot more flexible and not have to fight the framework as much when you want to do some really weird things. Um, whereas uh, Vue.js is somewhere in between, where they have you know, an official router, um, an official you know, centralized state management, uh, and a lot of other things. And the framework will do a lot more for you rather than expecting you to use patterns over other things. But um, it also doesn't you know, really have dependency injection. Uh, it's something you have to, to, to work around. When you're talking about DI and some of these other features that come with Angular, um, they're really better for larger applications. And even if you're working in a larger application, sometimes you just want to you know, get to the point of the front end. The front end is, front end is complicated enough. And with a very you know simple you know single view kind of you know app that doesn't really do too much, you can feel like oh this this isn't too bad. This isn't a lot of work. But if you're you know building on top of an SPA with you know dozens or you know hundreds of different views, and you have tons of modals and components and things that mix between local state and centralized state and on and on and on, um, you know it, it ends up being a lot. So I could see why some organizations would lean towards something like Angular, but. Uh, you can still do those things in React. And I think React hits the sweet spot of being able to choose. You just have to be a little bit more experienced to be able to choose the right thing and actually make something that is clean code. Yep, I hear that. And uh, when you work... Go ahead, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. so when you're working on the back end, though, so with Angular, I feel like forcing people into the enterprise pattern is bad, whereas in SJS, I feel like forcing people into the enterprise pattern is good. Because when you're working with the back end, uh, you know, you're working with you know databases, other external APIs. Um, you know you're building your own APIs. Uh, you might be, have like email, external authentication, maybe. Like there's a lot of stuff that can go into it that you know you're going to want to you know mock or fake, um, or you might want to reuse in other projects. You just want to be able to plug and play sometimes. Um, and on the back end, even if you're if you're working with if let's say you're just starting with just Express. I don't know if anybody actually starts with just Node, but let's say you're, you're creating a, an Express project. You have to 
sort of follow the conventions of, you know, maybe you have a, a controllers folder and you put these things together and you can make an API that works mm -hmm. very simply, pretty fast. You can connect to a database, you know, using some third party ORM or ODM. Yep. And, you know, you can make something that works. And then all of a sudden you find that you've built a product and now you need to be able to add, you know, really good, you know, integration testing or even testing with something like Cypress. And you're finding now you need to, depending on the environment, swap out not just environmental variables, but how the server handles a lot of things. Um, and so I think when you get to, the, when you, especially when you get to testing and reusability, um, it becomes very hard to do a lot of that with just Express. And what you'll find that people do is often they'll sort of invent their own dependency injection system. And uh, they, they, they ended up having to do something like that if they want to have like a very reliably tested application. Um, so maybe you wouldn't need something like NES, NES features for uh, you know, microservices or building a lot of like modules could be reused across projects. Uh, but having that dependency ejection system on the back end, I think is, is critical. And at some point, your, your back end is probably going to need that. So the fact that they include that by default and it's all built around their DI system, I think is crucial. Whereas in Angular, I feel like it's it's not really necessary. And let's talk a little bit about the third brother. And I knew you were a big fan of it when we last talked, which is Vue. Uh, how have your thoughts changed, or where are your thoughts now on Vue? Which which of the three doesn't sound like Angular, but which of the three would be your go-to for, let's say, a quick project that you wanted to start or an idea you had? Um, benefits of Vue versus React, cons. I haven't explored it much myself, um, but what are your thoughts on that now, two years later? I'm, I'm super curious to hear it. So I've used both React and Vue since they were released, and uh, I have a lot of love for Vue. Um, I, I built a, a project, at a full product at Collio on top of it. Uh, originally integrating TypeScript was, was kind of tricky, but I felt like based off my experience level, Vue was just the perfect fit. Angular was too much. Uh, React could go in too many different, you know, harebrained directions if you didn't know the the proper patterns. Uh, but Vue, I felt like did just enough. And whenever somebody's like learning uh, how to work with component-based frameworks, uh, I always recommend Vue. Um, it just it does just enough for you. It makes it super easy to get up and started with. They have a really solid CLI tooling and you know standard libraries and even their uh, the development UI tool. Uh, they just they have a lot of features that make it really easy to use and build any kind of application um, for developers of all levels. Uh, my complaints with Vue came when, and it's not it's not Vue, it's me. Um, <laughs> when I started uh, trying to do some really tricky things on side projects, where I was trying to do uh, create like some flow based programming solutions, and um, I was creating some really interesting constructors for like generating components that then ger generated other things and TypeScript got super heavy. And it, I eventually got to the place where Vue just wasn't the right tool for the job, uh, which I hated, <laughs> but um, Vue is great if you're going to build an application and you want things to, to be as simple as possible. Um, but I feel like it starts, its usability starts to fall apart a little bit when you're creating uh extremely dense uh, tooling. So if I were to build like a, a CMS that 
let's say I was, I was building a CMS where people could ingest, inject custom components and uh, those components could be consumed in like five different ways by the, the UI on the CMS to display in, in a bunch of different fancy ways. They wanted the types to be like passed through everywhere. Um, like with React, you can get down to the level of, you know, using JavaScript or write your JSX if you really needed to. You can really break, break things down to the simplest parts and you're not limited by uh, the, the the part of the scale that Vue has sort of set themselves at in the center for how to actually construct these components. Gotcha. Um, and so React definitely can be more complicated, but uh, yeah. I, I, so nowadays, um, I think Vue is great. I recommend it to to everybody that's getting started or anybody that doesn't really know which one to choose. Uh, but for the kind of work that I do, I find that the uh, the programmatic flexibility of React has been a lot better. And so if I'm starting a new project, I'm going to start with React. But I recognize that that's not going to be the right choice for every project or for every team. I'll tell you, I'm glad I didn't have to go through some of the, the learnings. I did learn Angular, and I've done a small project with it, but never have experienced Vue. It, from what I always gathered, it was very similar to React in the way that they approached Kind of the component style building and everything on the front end really is componentized now if you know and any of the frameworks that are worth their weight i'd say so what are cmss what value have you gotten out of them what value do they provide so uh cms is a content management system um most popular being something like wordpress uh so CMSs are typically used with uh, managing e-commerce or like static content sites, where it's just a place for a non-developer to be able to come in and uh, use a UI in order to manage the, the, the content of the site. Uh, I worked in an agency for a few years where we, we built a lot of websites. And we went from a place where we were developing the majority of the, of the sites in code, like at the CSS and PHP level, and over time, we move things more and more to being able to be customized by UI tooling that we'd created until eventually by the time we left, um, for the most part, they didn't really need a developer to do the vast majority of the work. So we essentially cut ourselves out of a job at the perfect time that we were you know, hitting the ceiling and ready to move on to mm -hmm. uh, you know, bigger and better things. Well done. Well played. So, yeah. <laughs> At least you're not the guys um, that are writing really, you know, obfuscated code that's hard to understand just so, you know, no one can replace you without four months of training. Yeah, no, no, no. My, <laughs> my major goal is to, if I can, make sure that if I get hit by a bus, like everything's going to be okay. And if I'm the only developer and I get hit by a bus, um, I like to try to make sure that, uh, you know, the non-developers can continue moving along and doing the things that they need to do. So if somebody needs to change, you know, some text on a page that shouldn't require a whole pull request to do or, you know, commit if you're not doing PRs or uploading directly to a PHP server if you're doing it that way. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that CMSs are not utilized enough. And when, when it comes to web applications and even, even mobile apps. So a lot of people think of CMSs as just a way to, uh, you know, manage content manage pages like static content and you know maybe some products or something like that but i mean they're really just a way to to save any kind of data and manage that with the ui and there's a lot that we're doing with uis where we're manually as developers going through and managing layouts and translations and even settings or timeouts or uh, maybe even in some cases like the order of operations or how we do validation on some things or what what events occur 
after a certain action is performed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of things are going to be moving in the direction of leaning more on CMS-style management for managing applications, if you want to call it AMS, for application management system. Mm-hmm. Um, so as any product grows, uh, the, the scope of the work that a developer is responsible for also grows. And it gets to the point where one developer can never keep up. The backlog is always going to be more than you can do. And you hire more and more people until you eventually get to the place where you just have to, you have to continuously pick and choose what's most important. Some things in the backlog never get handled. Um, developers also start to get bored with solving the same problems over and over and over again. But when you move things into like, let's say like feature flags and launch darkly or uh, you start moving a lot of like content or even site settings into uh, CMS like Sanity or uh, you know one of the many other solutions out there. Uh, it takes a lot of the responsibility away from the developer, and it puts that power in the hands of you know designers and the product people. And so a lot of people might think about a CMS as just managing content or uh, you know uh, managing some some CSS colors or something like that. If you did something crazy, but you know, you can manage layouts. Uh, you can add settings to do a lot of really complicated things if you wanted to. And then it's just a matter of training the non-developers to be able to take control of those portions of the application. And when you start to do that, then developers get to start working less on, you know, uh, pixel-perfect layouts and, uh, you know, introducing a bunch of, you know, content and translation-based logic into, you know, their own code. And they get to focus more on developing systems. And, you know, whenever you're doing something new, like uh, like when you first get into CSS, you're like, okay, well, this is tricky. This is, oh, this is an interesting problem to solve. How do I, you know, lay off this in this way? Or how do I make something that looks like this? And so those are all new problems for you. But you get to a point where you've you've solved a lot of those problems before and it just becomes, just becomes boring. But when you're building these kinds of systems, it it takes everything up to a much higher level of abstraction. And... You know, being able to move from just you know doing the thing to creating systems to allow other people to do the things, uh, to me, that's a much more programmatically engaging way to think about uh, you know content and web applications and things like that. So um, when it comes to CMSs, like I would love to see more solutions geared towards using CMSs to manage entire applications. Um, and I, I've done quite a bit of work uh, over the past probably two years now, trying to find different ways to move a lot of application development into UIs. And while most, you know, UI-driven development processes have been, you know, kind of terrible, I think that there's a sweet spot somewhere in there that, you know, I think there's a way to develop some sort of a system that is built with developers in mind, something developers would actually want to use and support and build build in custom logic and programming for um, that can also be super, like encourage an intuitive UI and set of controls for non-development people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's just a, that's a topic that, that kind of excites me. And I'd like to see more work done in that space. Yeah, and I would too. A lot of what you're saying makes me think about you know, developing tooling for non-technical folks, even within that, uh, the, the software industry, you have a lot of these DevOps people who can make, and we're talking about it before this, CLIs that make the developer experience much better. So someone spends the time to develop tooling for a developer who can then 
you know, with the training wheels on, go ahead and do their thing without having to go and learn the manual or have to, having to pull out the manual to do it. And then you have the software engineers who, to your point exactly, I would argue for the same thing. A lot of what we're doing, at least in the full stack or web dev arena, and possibly also outside, um, you know, making, making tools or I, I would call it things in general that take the layer of abstraction up a level where you enable someone to, who is more, who is less technical to execute on something that they normally wouldn't have been able to or would have taken them a lot of time to. That's something that I think is extraordinarily valuable. And obviously, I think the major goal of software is to automate a lot of the monotonous or fickle work that humans have to do. And it is just one layer after another, after another, after another in the world of solving problems of someone has knowledge, they translate that up into something that's usable for someone who has a problem that satiates the, the, the problem that they're having. And it is interesting. I think you can get caught in a loop as a developer day to day where it does just seem a lot like execution and you don't necessarily frame things in this way. Why am I doing this? What is this going to help? Like what time, whose time is this, whose life is this going to make easier? Things like that. Um, and speaking of problems, uh, let, let's say hypothetically you had a magic wand and you could wave it and any given problem in your work could be just gone or taken care of or automated. What would it be other than yourself? How, how, other than yourself <laughs> getting in the way, what, what would be the thing that comes to mind when you think of uh, if you didn't have to deal with it or if it was automated, it would be great for you? Um. You know, I, I think we're making a lot of progress on the development side of things and creating abstractions that are useful and find that sweet spot between being too much and too little. Um, if I had a magic wand and I could just wave it and make something disappear, it would probably be some sort of solution to improve the pipeline from product to design to development. Uh, that whole space is crossing through like several different areas of expertise mm -hmm. where you have a lot of different barriers up and tooling that, you know, kind of integrates, but it really it requires a lot of crossover for each one of those those different groups to understand the others in order to be able to communicate things clearly. You don't think so, uh, like, six-hour meetings between between everyone gets the job done? <laughs> you don't think that gets the job done? No, no I, think, I don't think it does at all. Like if a, <laughs> if a designer doesn't really understand how components work, right? And if, or... Uh, even if a designer doesn't understand that we can build systems to reuse things and, you know, things can be extended on and uh, inherent from inherit from other things, then they're going to keep creating these designs that aren't necessarily, you know, reliable or they're not going to create uh, like it might be fine for a designer that is building like a, a brochure site to just create a bunch of stuff in, in Photoshop documents and say, Oh, well on this page, it looks just like this because this is how I feel like this specific button should look or you know, this specific view. Whereas um, a designer that is working with developers that are building more of systems, they might look at a brochure site and say, okay, um, I have these types of sections, um, these types of layouts that can exist in sections, and we have images that can exist or content or a form can fill up the whole thing. There might be a modal. And I think a, a, a really solid designer can understand uh, how developers think about building applications so that they can give you like a UI kit for uh, you know how the modal should look, how the 
the the primary and secondary button should look, uh, how the all the different organized typography should look on the side. Um, that way, developers can do a more direct translation from what's in the designer's head to uh, you know the code that they're actually laying down. Um, so just to just to kind of jump in the middle there. So more what I'm hearing is kind of more cross-domain knowledge would be useful for everyone. It's not really a tooling thing. It would be an understanding and a solving of others' problems proactively is kind of the way that you think that that might be able to be solved or that would at least help. Perhaps required pre-education, maybe a designer that does want to go into visual or graphic design does have a you know, maybe a intro to React class or something. Is that kind of uh, the gist you're getting at? Yeah, I, I think different companies solve this problem in different ways. Um, I think tooling can really help uh, because when you introduce tooling and you use technology to say, hey, these these are the boxes where you can fit in uh, the things that we need. Um, you can enforce that people are thinking about problems in those terms. Um, so if you had some sort of tooling that uh, allowed a designer to, you know, design a UI kit in terms of how components kind of work using some other UI, then that would handle a lot, a lot of that for them without them having to do a lot of training. Uh, the company I work at now, um, they actually have like boot camps for I'm pretty sure everybody that works uh, with uh, the tech team where they all go through a simple programming boot camp so that they can, you know, understand enough about what it is that they're responsible for. And as a result, like everybody outside of development has just been just excellent to work with because they they get it. You know, it's nice to work with a project manager that, you know, kind of understands Git and understands what you mean when you're talking about a component right. or APIs or, or GraphQL or anything like that. Um, training is huge, uh, but training isn't always available or, uh, you know, reasonable to ask a small company to solve. So, and that's where a lot of those issues really, you know, show up is at smaller agencies where, um, you know, they're not going to be able to, to train their designer to, to do those things without developers that are basically telling them what they need. And then it also raises the question of, okay, well, developers have, developers are like the last line of defense here where all this information comes down to them and then they have to ask the questions to go back up because they have to actually implement the exactly. final vision. Yep. Um, and so a lot of what I would like to see would be to take the sort of, you know, triangle of work where at the top you have ideation and then from there you go through however you manage your product and defining the requirements and everything like that to the design process that implements that and, you know, content and everything else. And then finally development that actually implements the final thing into something that can be used. Obviously there's QA and like other processes, but to me, like that's, that's kind of, how, kind of how I look at it. And overall, I try to look for solutions that sort of like reduce that triangle and rather than just trying to push responsibilities back up the hill to say, Hey, design, not only do you have to, you know, parse everything the product is telling you and you're responsible for deciphering everything and telling them that, you know, this feature doesn't make sense. How to represent this new UI. I mean, they have a lot of responsibility to translate words into something that looks like a UI, mm -hmm. right? They actually have to plan how the application is, is going to work mm -hmm. um, from a user perspective. And that's, that's a big responsibility. So just, you know, taking the responsibility from developers and also putting that on design isn't necessarily the right idea. So I think that we need to have probably a mixture of training and tooling and processes that can, you know, take that load and basically not only move it further up the stack, but also reduce the amount of 
uh, effort that has to go in each layer to translate something from ideation all the way down to delivery so that we're not just pushing everything up to product saying, hey, now you guys have to figure out everything. But if they're the ones making the decision, they should be able to do more uh, with their tooling uh, in order to uh, more easily translate what's in their head onto designers and then onto developers. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And the there was a guy that I had worked with at a development agency when I had first graduated. And he had begun as a developer, started on the back end, went to the front end, and then he became a designer. And the way that this company had structured things, basically they had potential clients who wanted a iOS mobile app uh, or a web app or any kind of a software application built. Those clients would meet with a product manager and a designer almost exclusively for about a month. And they would nail out the details the way it would look, the way it would feel, what kind of branding they were going for, all the way through. Then the designer and the product manager would kind of work back and forth, and the designer would build the entire product from start to finish with interactive click-throughs with tools like Zeppelin. Um, they'd make all the assets. Uh, you could use Figma too these days, but the point is this guy knew all the pains and the experiences of developers, uh, not only on the back end, but the front end too. So he knew, you know, maybe what API calls the front end would have to make. And that cross-domain knowledge made him a breeze to work with. I never remember having to ask him a question for more than a minute because he had already thought about all the questions I might have asked and already had an answer for them, already had accounted for them. And that was excellent. So I've, you're definitely onto something with the cross-domain knowledge. And obviously finding people that do have that cross-domain knowledge is extremely hard. And I do think this is something that larger organizations can let get out of hand uh, in terms of, you know, early 1900s, I believe, Ford comes up with the idea for the assembly line. And the person who did the work before you didn't have to know a thing about what you did. They did their, they, they bent the metal the way they had to, and they passed it on to the guy who did the painting. And it all worked great. And I think businesses over years and years and years have just applied that model, great one, to every sort of business and processes within the business. I don't know. I'm not so sold that software enterprises are necessarily entirely well suited for it. Surely there's plenty of parts of tech businesses that do and can chunk things into the small processes where you only need to know what you know in this small domain and you can execute and everything will be fine. But I think as organizations scale and you do kind of almost more segregate product and design and engineering, that these things can become a big problem and the communication lines in, or in large organizations get even more fuzzy as they grow. And far be it from me to propose a, a solution to it here and now, but I do think it's something that I've noticed for quite some time now. And to your point too, it's obviously tricky in a startup or a small company arena because, you know, I mean, of the millions of problems that a small company or startup could have, if you can't even get the handoff correct and you don't even have the right tooling and the systems aren't, you know, humming at that point, 
you, you can't just hire someone new and throw resources at it. You have to be like, okay, well, Sally's got to go learn how to do a little bit of design, and maybe she's designing the, the application that she's developing. But it is very... You know, I hadn't I hadn't framed at all, and most people I ask that question too. If you had, if you could snap your fingers and have one thing be fixed, most of them say, "I wish TypeScript could do X. I wish this could do Y." But you've gone a philosophical layer deeper, or a a process layer deeper, and uh, that that is certainly something that I think everybody, designer, pro product managers, and developers alike, have had pain points with for all of time. So um, <clears throat> you're talking about the the whole assembly line approach to developments, and uh, I'm definitely not advocating that. Um, when you start to silo people and separate them and reduce their scope, uh, it makes the work faster, but you end up getting less innovation. The right problems don't get solved. Uh, you can have a lot of problems with that with that approach. But uh, I guess what I'm trying to to get at is, I would snap my fingers and try to find ways to reduce the friction between all of these things and uh, find ways in order to bring people together so that they can can collaborate more um, rather than having to spend a lot of time trying to translate ideas into vision. Yeah, the translation, certainly things get lost in translation. And I think obviously for manufacturing companies or physical products, if, if you gotta produce a million units of X, sure, great, like you can obviously make machines or processes that are very well defined, but to your point on kind of the killing of innovation, it, it's definitely loud and clear a problem that exists. And there's definitely some space there. I, I know plenty of people have tried. I was talking about Zeppelin. It's a great tool for design developer handoff, but to your point again, there's certain things that just get lost. And the company that I was working at that I mentioned who did this whole product development phase and then they handed it off to the developer and said, go. You know, that could have been a month from when the designer was first working on it and then you have the time lag for, oh, like I might have forgotten why I made that decision. There's all sorts of things that can happen, but it is, it is a great point. So on top of that, I would say, we've been talking a lot about work here. Uh, what has kept you sane in a, in a world where you know, you are dealing with these difficult handoffs and all these funny things. Uh, what has kept you sane? Obviously, it's been a funny last couple of year and a half or so. But uh, what keeps you what keeps you humming outside of work? Um. Well, uh, I have a fiance, so I spend <laughs> all of my non-work time with her, pretty much. Um, and other than you know, home stuff or uh, before the pandemic, being able to spend time with uh, with friends and family. Um, I did pick up. Uh, picked up woodworking which is probably the worst time to do that because the prices skyrocketed <laughs> uh but you know i've been enjoying a little bit of that just trying to get away from a screen and do something with my hands um i rejected that notion for such a long time and the moment i started i was like yes this is uh this is so much nicer uh you know we try to try to go on walks uh try to stay a little bit active um you know i've been running a lot more trying to like go on bike rides things that are you know pandemic safe um, don't play a lot of video games. Um, never really seem to have enough time, but uh, whenever I do, uh, it's always VR, just so that I'm up and moving around and ah, doing that's something interesting. active. Like if I'm gonna play, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna play a video game, I want it to like get my adrenaline up, and I want to be moving around a bit. So I've been playing uh, when I have the opportunity. I play a lot of uh, a game called Population One. Um, you know, I think it's a really good way to uh, 
you know, get kind of excited, you know, and get your energy up and move around, maybe get a little bit sweaty, depending on how you play. And, uh, you know, just, just do something really, really different. Um, you know, a little bit more dynamic than, you know, chores and working. Yeah, I do find a lot of devs do have video games as that kind of outlet um, among the people who do have kind of a life outside development work. I, from what I've gathered, there are so many devs who do just develop, and that is entirely their life. And I know plenty of my friends who I went to school with and who are working now where that, that definitely isn't the case, and it isn't the case for all of their peers in whatever industry that they're in. Um, but it is certainly healthy for me the the kick out of out of the rabbit hole so to speak from from developing for the day is working out for sure going for long bike rides going for runs playing soccer uh, those sort of things like you said getting up moving around getting the adrenaline going kind of having a goal to compete towards like you're talking about even woodworking obviously there's an end goal and it's a very productive thing to be doing what have you built? Any any good projects? We have any uh, works in progress, shelves? We're talking about general contractors earlier. Am I, am I going to hire you to build my first fence here or what? <sighs> no, no, definitely not. My, my major goal, because, you know, you have to have like a, a far out goal or something you're going to build. Uh, I plan on building a, a bed for us. Okay. So it's kind of a kind of a larger project, but uh, it'll be uh, relatively low to the ground kind of bed. It'll have the uh, the whole canopy and stuff like that because that's what she wants. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of working towards that. No, you've thought it through the, um, the long-term goal is great. And it's funny you say a bed, my, my dad had gotten into woodworking. I don't know when, but I still have a bed frame at my home, uh, the house I grew up in that he built when I was, I think one year old and he built it for me and my brother to grow into either. He made the same bed frame for both of us, just duplicated the work that he did and, mm-hmm. Uh, the things are still kicking. They're sturdy as all heck. It's it's an impressive project. It's awesome. You know, you were talking about uh, developers that that only develop, right? And their whole life is development. Um, I feel like that's pretty common when when you're in like hungry phases or like a part of a cycle where you're just super interested, in, like learning something and trying things out. Um, in the earlier part of my career, I I was doing that all the time. Uh, to the extent that sometimes it, you know, affected my relationships because I was always, you know, working. Uh, but you know, I could spend, I could work all day and then be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to code anymore. And then you close your editor, and then you open up your editor, and you start working on that personal project, and you just, you know, that fire lights up, and yep. you just have like these endless, you know, questions that you want to answer. Um, and I feel like uh, some of that fire has not necessarily died out, but. I've started to appreciate a lot of the things that I might have been neglecting before. So, you know, making sure that you're maintaining your relationships and, uh, you know, t- first taking care of yourself, then taking care of, you know, people around you. Um, and then also, you know, making progress in, in other areas because eventually uh, you will burn out. And so for me, I, I go through cycles. Um, every few months, I go through a cycle of, you know, being on fire, being super passionate. All I want to do is code. Uh, I would, you know, hell, I would take time off of work just to work on things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just because I'm, I'm like that lit up, uh, whether it be learning or uh, working on like a side project or something like that that I'm really interested in. Um, and then a few weeks pass of that and I go into sort of a, a depressive phase where, you know, I'm just kind of burned out on all of that. And I'm not necessarily depressed, like I'm, I'm doing my job and, uh, you know, 
mostly happy when I'm with what I'm doing, but I don't have enough fire to keep me going in the evenings or early in the mornings to work on personal stuff. And so I'll feel kind of, you know, burned out then. And then I go from that to wanting to be more social where I, you know, recognize that, you know, maybe I've been neglecting some, some friendships and I'll try to reach out and talk to people more and do things more with people. And I want to get up and move and be active. And then eventually that gets kind of, uh, you know, I want to be more of an extrovert. Uh, and then maybe because I'm doing that, then uh, the fire gets reignited. And then I just want to like go face down and, and study again. And uh, I've talked to a number of developers about this and it seems like quite a few people go through cycles. And I'm wondering if they're, if it's that the cyclical nature of, you know, having, you know, high and low points is natural for passions or if maybe we're just doing it wrong. Like maybe it's just the fact that we are, you know, sitting in front of a computer looking at a screen. Like maybe if we do work out every day and do manage all of these aspects of our life, maybe there's a way to manage it to where we don't have, you know, several weeks of, uh, of burnout. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah. And the work-life balance bit is something I think you're hearing about more and more modern day. And you see the large corporate companies trying to adjust to things like unlimited off time, which isn't really unlimited off time, but I think they're becoming, or at least are pretty aware of the trouble that people are having in general, not just developers with finding that balance. Um, it is tricky to find. I know when I was in college, the, the triangle of, of the optimization triangle was grades on the top, social life on one of the sides, and then health on the other. And you could only have two. Like to have all three was, that was your trick, right? That was trying to find yourself right in the center of that thing and to be, you know, 50% on all of them or, you know, contributing equally to all of them, um, and as I graduated, I very much so had, I always had all these ideas and I would always try. I think the one thing about being a dev is you have, you're very empowered because you can build whatever you think about, at least if you're thinking about software pursuits. And I always had ideas and still do. And you can have these bouts that you go through where you go through like a three month cycle of just trying to build this thing as quick as you can. And, you know, you see what happens and to your point earlier, thinking about the product side of it, or I guess I would go further and say the marketing sales side of it, sometimes you could just be a little bit too nearsighted and you don't think about how this thing's actually gonna get sold or if it's actually viable, all these things. But the, the balance in life for me since college, the triangle has changed. Uh, I'd say it's no longer grades, but I, I would say it would be meaning, social life, health, Family would be kind of bundled into all of those, probably social, but um, optimizing for all of them is certainly tough. And there are times when you have to put your head down and just do one thing and be hyperlinear. Um, I'm not saying it will make for the best family life for a month or whatever, or best work life for however long. You know, everyone has yeah. things where they go through where they have to kind of be a little bit less in tune and have to take care of their family. Or, you know, this project needs to get delivered for us to seal a million dollar contract in the next month let's go um and then all of a sudden it's like oh hey john want to go for a bike ride i know i haven't reached out to you in a month here i've been a little busy so you know optimizing for all three is tough and everyone's doing it but uh like you said it, it is good at least for that 
fire that's blazing really loudly on one of those points of the triangle to slowly dim down so you can kind of come back, take a step to the balcony, be like, oh yeah, I've been neglecting that and that. So maybe it's a good thing that it's a bit cyclical because it does give you at least a chance, not that you're going to take it always, but it does give you the chance to segue into putting your efforts elsewhere or at least rebalancing. Yeah. You know, the most important thing is probably uh, having a system and then understanding when you should be flexible on that system. Mm -hmm. Knowing knowing where to make your concessions. Yeah, I'd agree. Well, Harry Horton, I think uh, that was excellent. And we could go on and on here. There was plenty of things we didn't get to, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure you'll be back. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. And yeah, no, thank you. It's Wednesday here. It's yeah, been great. Awesome, man. Have a good night, and uh, I'll catch up with you soon. All right, you too.